vaccinations, germs, infections, transmission, etc. all interconnected. It's all interconnected. There's a lot of levels and layers to it. But interestingly enough, with Pasteur, he is one of the forerunners of vaccination. Yes, he is, yeah. And a lot of people don't know that either, that he was there in the early days of rabies vaccination, vaccinating for cholera, etc., experimenting with different doses. And he figured out a process for kind of killing a virus and then injecting, injecting it, it back. and seeing that there's immunity. Right. So all of those experiments that he did back then made him famous and he is a forerunner also of the whole idea of sterilization and hygiene control. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 132, Pasteurization. Don't cry over spoilt milk. We are indeed in time track. We are traveling through time back, back, back to the Napoleonic era. That's right. And Napoleon, unbeknownst to some people, he actually launched a contest during the Napoleonic Wars when he knew he had to march his armies across Europe. Really? Yeah. He launched a contest to find a way to preserve his food because he had to move hundreds of thousands of men across countries and food preservation became a matter of literally life and death. So he created this contest, which he announced and put out in Paris. And of all people, a confectioner and chef in Paris named Nicolas Appert, A-P-P-E-R-T. You're better at the That's, French pronunciation. That would be correct. Would yeah, that be correct? Okay. Yeah. He began experimenting actually in 1795, and he was inspired by wine in corked bottles. Appert placed food inside glass jars reinforced with wire and then corked and sealed the jar. He actually sealed the jars with wax. Yep. And the jars were wrapped in canvas and boiled, and Appert deemed the food sufficiently cooked. This wasn't an exact science back then. Mm -hmm. And a pair of successfully canned fruit, vegetables, soups, marmalades, dairy products, and juices. Wow. Ends up winning the contest. And of course, the rest, as they say, is history because Napoleon has canned food and we are introduced to canned food for the first time. Oh, Monsieur General Napoleon, uh, I have your lunch for you today. Oh, what is it? Uh, here we go. Uh, what is this? Uh, it is a can, uh, Monsieur General. Oui, oui. Uh, oui, oui. Oh, <laughs> uh, what is this called? Spam? Oh, spam. Very good. Very yeah. good. Bien, bien. The, the funny thing about all this, too, is, is that Napoleon was not impressed, even though he had his answer, because he was relegated to a lot of the same food that his soldiers had to eat because of the conditions. Right. It wasn't as tasty. He is quoted as saying, Pooh, I spit on your spam. That's right. That's a direct quote. Yeah, I have to check that out. You could be right. <laughs> uh, anyway, which really leads us to the podcast today. Yeah, because we're talking about the methodologies developed to keep food fresh. Mm -hmm. And so you start with Napoleon. Right. There were certainly methodologies earlier than that in the use of honey, for example, as mm -hmm. a preservative. And they've found honey in urns that are thousands of years old. In the and pyramids, sort of 3,000 years, and it was still edible. Yeah. There are no other foods known that have gone that long and sort of self-preserved and still yes. be edible. That's right. And before Napoleon's um, 
contest winner came along, food was preserved in the native Aboriginal traditions of smoking, drying, and that sort of thing. But as you said to me earlier today, that really wasn't good enough for Napoleon and his army. They needed a bigger variety. Right. Flavor. He wanted more flavor. More flavor. Yeah, absolutely. Before we begin the discussion, just a little bit of uh, input here on how is highly processed food actually measured? In other words, what defines it? Okay. So these are the five things that are typically associated with processed foods. Mm -hmm. One, the ingredients you would not cook with at home. Two, have artificial additives. Three, any form of refined added sugar. Four, refined grains, i.e. wheat without the word whole, quote. And five, contains more than five ingredients. There's a sixth. A snappy name like Twinkies. Uh, Twinkies, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> that is the so-called definition of what highly processed food consists of. Yeah, yeah. So moving on, the whole idea here, apart from that, is that we're talking about food preservation. Right. And around about the middle of the 19th century, along comes this French biologist, microbiologist, and chemist... And people will know him as soon as you mention the, the word milk and how it's kept fresh. They'll say, well, it's pasteurization, of course. Louis. So we're referring, of course, to Louis Pasteur. Really, he's the most famous of all the scientists of that day mm -hmm. because of that process primarily. And what people don't actually realize is that it wasn't about milk no. to, be, to begin with. Right. It wasn't about milk at all. There were winemakers, France is, you know, a wine country, and winemakers were coming to him and sort of asking him to figure out why the wine was going bad, why mm -hmm. it was going sour, and if there was any way to keep it fresh longer. Right. I mean, they were obviously aging wine in barrels. So it's very important to understand what was making wine go bad. Right? Mm -hmm. So he began to look at that, and he began to realize that the whole idea of germ theory up to that point, which was that there was the air itself was somehow a problem. And somehow within the substance, the wine or a body, if it's a person, the disease or the fermentation or the souring would happen from within somehow. Mm -hmm. That it wasn't an external anything that invaded and so he would do experiments where he would take two flasks of wine, mm -hmm. one in which he would sterilize and then close it up, and the other he would sterilize the contents by heating them and then leave it open, and the open one would go bad, the closed one would not. So right away he realized the whole issue of containment. So he's proving that right. there are particles in the air that invade the substance to make it go bad beyond the natural fermentation process where the right. yeast makes the sugar turn into alcohol. It's like a it's catalyst. Like a, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the whole world of germ theory right. was kind of turned on its head at that point. And so then that process was applied to beer following that, in which you would heat the beer, heat the wine to a certain degree, Mm -hmm. and then seal it off, and that's where you'd have it kind of sterilized in a way and keep it fresh. And, and while you're talking about that, just to clarify what that whole process is, basically you're dealing with biology. It's microbes, pathogens, which you're trying to either control or eliminate. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And then it wasn't actually until a bit later on, almost 50 years later, really, that the pasteurization process for milk really took hold and became law. Mm-hmm. that it had to be pasteurized. And even the last 30 years here in this part of the world, mm-hmm. there have been controversies over milk, unpasteurized milk, raw milk versus pasteurized milk. And there are farmers who were selling raw milk directly to customers mm-hmm. rather than going through the whole processing and pasteurization and selling it through markets. They would just sell it direct. And they were being brought to court and their trials. I think it's a farmer named Schmidt in the area who is the center of that controversy here. And we're in Canada. Yeah. And we're talking basically about ourselves in the U.S. primarily. Right. So this fellow Schmidt has been dragged through court numerous times. And what he ended up doing in the end was instead of selling his milk directly to customers from his cows, <laughs> this is yeah. brilliant, he sold shares in his cows ah. to customers. So they basically already own the milk. They're not purchasing the milk kind of get it directly that way. Right, right. And people who drink raw milk swear by it. They're not falling sick and dying by the hundreds and thousands as the government and the authorities mm-hmm. and the health boards are saying should happen or will happen. And so kind of the jury is out on that. Vaccinations, germs, infections, transmission, etc. all interconnected. It's all interconnected. There's a lot of levels and layers to it. But interestingly enough, with Pasteur, he is one of the forerunners of vaccination. Yes, he is, yeah. And a lot of people don't know that either, that he was there in the early days of rabies vaccination, vaccinating for cholera, etc., experimenting with different doses. And he figured out a process for kind of killing a virus and then injecting, injecting it, it back. and seeing that there's immunity. Right. So all of those experiments that he did back then made him famous and he is a forerunner also of the whole idea of sterilization and hygiene control in hospitals, in surgery, surgeries, right. etc. Because mm-hmm. people were dying in droves back then in surgery. Oftentimes right? more died from the infection than the actual surgery itself. Exactly. Right. So it was, it was revolutionary. Uh, it changed medicine forever. And people look to him as an icon mm-hmm. of what modern medicine has become in a way. Right. And, but there are problems to this. And now we're moving a little bit off of Pasteur, but more into the whole notion of hygiene and sterilization. And we'll talk about COVID in a minute. I wanted to mention something I discovered mm-hmm. in the last few days. Mm-hmm. I was researching vaccinations and vaccines, and I thought I'd dial up polio. Because people who are very pro-vaccination talk about, well, without the vaccination, polio, polio, the measles, you know, Mm. all these stuff. And so I thought, let's look at polio. 1950s. Yeah, Jonas Mm. Salk, famous Mm. Jonas Mm. Salk. Well, Mm. interestingly, I sort of dialed that up and I saw the chart of the evolution of polio. And it shows the curve. And it's like a typical curve, a viral curve, over 50 years. Yes, right. (laughs) Right? So it's a long process. But it's the same curve. And the height of that curve, the apex, is 1952. Mm-hmm. And there are something like 59,000 cases and about 3,500 deaths that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you look at 1953 and it drops. Declining. And then 54 and it's dropping. And then 1955, by the time the vaccine is introduced, right. it's already half the number of cases mm-hmm. and one third the number of deaths. Right. So. It seems that the virus was already fading and on its way down and out 
by the time the vaccine was brought into effect. So it also speaks to the, the time element mm -hmm. of producing something that was workable and usable. Sure, absolutely. Right? And you're right. I wasn't as aware of the details as you were, but I was aware of the decline mm -hmm. that occurred yeah. actually prior to, as you said, the vaccine actually coming out. And there's a lot of people that will argue that had it been left to its own devices, it would have canceled itself out. Now, I don't know enough about it to say it unequivocally, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah. And, you know, the whole evolution of vaccines uh, themselves in terms of how they're tested, the research on them, mm -hmm. the safety studies. And most recently, people are raising the alarm bells over a possible link to autism. Now, people who are really pro-vaccine will say that's been completely debunked, but it hasn't because there have been absolutely no studies on the safety of the aluminum adjuvant, which is in most vaccines nowadays. Mm -hmm. The only safety studies are on the vaccine itself that already has the adjuvant in it, but nothing on the aluminum adjuvant itself. And scientists know full well that aluminum is extremely toxic in the body. It's a neurotoxin, right? Sure, even amalgam, which is in our teeth. There's been a lot of uh, discussion and things written regarding the well, amalgam in our teeth. Is that the mercury or are you talking about? Mercury and metals that are metals. leaching exactly. into our circulatory systems. It's like a seepage of sort, the slow yeah. seepage. And then with aluminum, what they're finding in these studies is that injected aluminum, so through vaccines, because we ingest aluminum orally mm -hmm. in, from many different uh, sources, sources. Yeah, yeah, foods and all kinds of things. Like iron. But we were able to kind of piss it out mm -hmm. and reject it. Uh, but with injected aluminum, apparently that particular form of aluminum, its attribute is that it can burst through the blood-brain barrier right. and then lodge itself in the brain. And so when they dissect the brains of autistic people, people with Asperger's syndrome, Alzheimer's, etc., they, they find, find high amounts of aluminum right. in the brain itself. So that's ongoing. And obviously, you can't say one causes the other directly, but there are lots of studies Correlating where, where they can't simply ignore it anymore. Right? Right. So these people who are anti-vaccination are, are anti-vaccination because of these kinds of questions and problems, mm -hmm. etc. So It's not foolproof. It's not foolproof, no. But there was Pasteur at the beginning of this whole thing, experimenting on rabbits, etc., for the rabies vaccine, anthrax. He also was mm -hmm. big in terms of creating a vaccine for anthrax uh, and all of that stuff. So here's the thing about the polio vaccine, though, sure. I wanted to share. Mm -hmm. When polio was kind of really coming in and attacking children, this was early in the 20th century in particular, when it really started to show mm -hmm. itself, right? Began its rise in that curve, I 1900s, mentioned. 1900s, early 1900s, yeah. yeah. And it attacked children at a very young age. And as time goes on early in the 20th century, they discover that it's older children and older children who are now getting it, not the young, young children. And the question is, why? Why was that? Well, mm -hmm. it turns out that a baby, a child, when they're born, inherits a certain amount of natural antibodies from their mother mm -hmm. that stay in their system for a time and then dissipate after a while. So when those children were encountering the polio virus at that age, they had those antibodies to fight it off. They had a defense system. And then when they fought it off, there were what's called memory cells 
that stayed in the child's body so that if they encountered it later on, it would kick in, it would kick in and they had immunity. Right. Okay, so what happens at the early part of the 20th century? And Pasteur is behind a part of that too, Hygiene. right? Hygiene becomes a big deal in terms of the masses. Mm-hmm. Wash your hands, clean this, clean that, make sure there's no viruses, no dirt, no germs, da 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 So the result of that is that those little kids that would have been in contact with the virus at a young age are now not in contact with the virus because of the extra hygiene going on. Mm-hmm. That's delayed. And, but by the time they do contact the virus later on, they're natural memory cells. Yeah. They have no immunity to polio, and we have an epidemic. Mm-hmm. The defense system is non-existent. That's how they explain the movement from incidences of polio to an epidemic of polio right. is the rise of hygiene. I thought that was really fascinating. I like germs. Germs make you stronger. We didn't even have pump soap. We had a bar of soap. We had a bar of soap that lasted so long, it rusted. It rusted. (laughs) It would crack and rust, and in the cracks there were rivers of mud. This is what you used to wash your hands. Where did this sudden fear of germs come from? in this country. Have you noticed this? The media constantly running stories about all the latest infections, salmonella, E. coli, hantavirus, bird flu, and, and Americans are, they panic easily, so now everybody's running around scrubbing this and spraying that and overcooking their food and repeatedly washing their hands, trying to avoid all contact with germs. It's ridiculous and it goes to ridiculous lengths. In prisons, before they give you a lethal injection, they swab your arm with alcohol. <laughs> It's true. Well, they don't want you to get an infection. And you can see their point. Wouldn't want some guy to go to hell and be sick. Fear of germs. What do you think you have an immune system for? It's for killing germs. But it needs practice. It needs germs to practice on. So listen. If you kill all the germs around you and live a completely sterile life, then when germs do come along, you're not going to be prepared. And never mind ordinary germs, what are you going to do when some super virus comes along that turns your vital organs into liquid shit? Let me tell you a true story about immunization, okay? When I was a little boy in New York City in the 1940s, we swam in the Hudson River, and it was filled with raw sewage, okay? We swam in raw sewage. You know, to cool off. (laughs) And at that time, the big fear was polio. Thousands of kids died from polio every year. But you know something? In my neighborhood, no one ever got polio. No one, ever. You know why? Because we swam in raw sewage. (laughs) It strengthened our immune systems. The polio never had a prayer. We were tempered in raw shit. The whole idea of tolerating any kind of death or illness, as you mentioned, even with polio, you have declining numbers. Yeah. You've kind of passed the worst of it, but now it's like you want to make sure that there's not another single life lost. So you proceed with the vaccine. And of course, we'll never know with 100% certainty. Yeah. Maybe the vaccine, it's quite possible that the vaccine is doing what exactly what it's supposed to do and right. helping to maintain that low level or zero level. Right. But it was already on the way down to that low level mm-hmm. to begin with. So we don't know, as you right. say. But this is the kind of thing that a lot of people question. Yeah. And they That's have right. just as much right to question it 
as people on the opposing side. And this has become a very, very big issue now with our current situation to the point where perhaps if this had happened 20 years ago, far fewer people would have questioned the validity of the vaccine itself, even when it comes out. Mm -hmm. But now there's a growing number of people who've already suggested or said openly that they will not take the vaccine. Well, look at when you and I were young, Peter, Mm -hmm. we got maybe two or three vaccines. They now get something in the range of 14 or 15 vaccines over the course of their early years. Mm -hmm. So they're getting a lot more vaccine, which means a lot more aluminum Mm -hmm. injected as well. Yeah, a lot more of everything. And we have higher incidences of autism, et cetera. So people are making connections and getting very worried, and rightly so. The other side note here is to do with language. In social media, there are all kinds of debates Mm -hmm. between pro-vaccine and people who are questioning vaccines. And those who question vaccines are called anti-vaxxers by a lot of (laughs) these people who are adamant about the safety of vaccines. And I object to that strenuously. Well, it's a negative connotation. Yeah, and it lumps Mm -hmm. extreme conspiracy theory types with people who are just questioning and wondering about the safety. Perfectly legitimate. All lumped together as anti-vaxxers in this negative connotation, Mm -hmm. as you say. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that bothers me. The level of discourse during this COVID time about vaccination, about health, about immunity, about Mm -hmm. immune, is is really degrading as we go. And it's very disturbing to me. And I think an increasing number of people are beginning to feel that way, Mm -hmm. which I think presents a problem in itself. As I mentioned to you in discussions before, I believe that what's going to happen between people is as grave or as serious as anything that COVID is doing. Yeah. You know, are, how are we going to treat each other? How are we going to deal with these differences? Are we going to tolerate one another's choices? Yeah. Or is someone going to try and mandate it to the entire population and have these extremes that will materialize on the streets and in our homes? Well, uh, it's a kind of civil war in, yeah, in a exactly. strange sort of way. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's not the South and the North. but yeah. and The last thing we need to be doing is fighting each other under these circumstances. Right. We have to find our way back to a civil discourse, civil mm-hmm. dialogue. Mm-hmm. Which kind of brings us back to the food preservation, which yeah. is why are we doing it in the first place? Well, we've changed the hunter-gatherer scenario. Of course, this is tens of thousands of years ago. Yeah. But we moved to urban centers. We now control more of, or at least we're attempting to control, more of what was set up by nature. So you're no longer in a small village gathering your corn for the day or drying some seeds. You now have urban centers. You have great distances of movement of product. You have seasonality. You want people that live in northern climates eating kiwi fruit in the mm-hmm. middle of December. Right. Well, they can't grow it. Where does it come from? It has to be preserved. Somewhere. Right, in some form. So refrigeration comes into play, chemical alterations of foods and so on. And of course, it's a fairly known fact that a lot of the nutritional value of food, there are studies, I remember reading somewhere that a tomato grown on your typical farm in 1960, had three or four times the nutritional value of a tomato grown today under mm. under the farming system, not the farmer who grows an organic tomato or you, the one that grows it in your backyard without pesticides and so on. I'm talking about 
under the grand roof of mass agricultural control systemic approach to farming, i.e. the Monsantos of the world and so on. Right, right. right. So this is all a similar thing with food as it is with germ warfare, vaccines, and so on. We're altering things to control how we want things to turn out. Yeah. Let's say, for example, even with the polio vaccine. Now, we're speaking as lay people here, so we're not professing to know the ins and outs. But as an example... If, in fact, that curve was winding down by itself in the absence of any available vaccine, yeah, it mm-hmm. speaks to the natural progression of, i.e., herd immunization and so on. Again, from a layman's perspective, there's a natural order that follows. Now, if we had been able, if we'd lived in a world of, say, if it didn't happen in the 50s or 1900s, whenever that took place, if it had happened 800 years ago, well, people would have just accepted it as they would have accepted any other plague or sickness, Mm -hmm. and it would have played out. A lot of people would have died and so on. But we are in a situation where we're attempting to control things, and there's a political agenda associated with death as well. So as a politician, you cannot tolerate, like, if you hear two people die, it's too, too many. Unless you're Donald Trump, in which you can (laughs) say, uh, well, it is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is what a mafia boss would say. It is what it is. Right. We whacked them, but it is what it is. Right. So we used uh, Pasteur to kind of segue our way into this, but the food preservation angle applies to many, many things that we do. We're always trying to alter things to accommodate our particular need or use. And there are consequences. Yeah. Well, you know, and the thing is that we live in a world now in the West Mm. where you can get your food every day fresh if you wanted to, Mm -hmm. if you wanted to live that lifestyle. You don't have to go out and buy three weeks worth of groceries to then put in your freezer and in your fridge and in the the cool cellar, et cetera, et cetera. You could go and buy raw vegetables and make salad and have a hamburger fresh or whatever it is that day and not have to stock up quite so much. Except that for most people, that's a difficult alignment to make because between jobs, kids at school, it's the way we live. There's a system now that makes it very, very difficult. But you've learned firsthand during this COVID situation, you got back into gardening big time, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, we created a veggie garden, which we hadn't had for a number of years. Great beans, by the way. Oh, thank you. And uh, well, a number of good things come out of creating a veggie garden. Mm -hmm. One is you realize how much work goes into it, even a small garden, and you start to appreciate the life that farmers lead and Mm -hmm. how difficult that is. Mm -hmm. Not talking big agribusiness necessarily, but farmers who are really involved with their hands Daily. uh, daily in the fields. So that means I appreciate the food that I get in the grocery store now more because Mm -hmm. I know where it comes from and how much work goes into it. Right. And then, you know, appreciating food that comes directly from the vine right onto your plate, the tomato right from the vine five minutes ago, and now you're having it and it's going into your system and there's nothing in between. There's no processing. There's no anything. Zero mystery. Zero mystery. It's beautiful. And then the flavor is always better, too. Oh, yeah. And all of that. 
I've been tending to this garden. My wife did the major amount of work in terms of preparing the bed, the soil bed, mm -hmm. etc. I did the seeding and I've done sort of the weeding and the harvesting and keeping track of what's coming up next as the summer has progressed into the fall. What about all the other benefits? You're out in the fresh air, sunshine. Right. You're strengthening your immune system. Your health is better. You feel better. Now, I don't know if this would relate to everyone because some people haven't experienced it, but even working with the soil or being out in the fresh air, yeah. it actually starts to also change the environment a little bit because you notice a few more butterflies, sure. more insects. There's a certain vibrancy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. environmental vibrancy that's beyond just the benefit of the food itself. It's the whole ecosystem evolving around it. Well, and the thing is, we are part of the ecosystem. Right. And that's, you begin to feel that when you get your hands in the soil and you smell the herb, you rub the leaf of the herb and you smell it and you go, oh yeah, that's, mm, that's really beautiful. Right, and right, right. you really start to engage nature in a different way. And you're just another organism within that. Well, exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. and being a city boy moved yeah. to the country, mm -hmm. everything is fresh and new for me. When I begin to do that more, I really start to appreciate why people love living in the country when mm -hmm. there's space to have a garden like that. Not everybody has that space. And I don't know about you, but I would also suggest that you give food a different importance for all those reasons that you expressed. Yeah. You automatically become less wasteful as well, I think. Oh, yeah. If there's extra tomatoes, it's like, how can we make a sauce and preserve the sauce? Can right. we freeze that? And what you about know? all the wrap and boxes and plastic that you've eliminated by going directly from your backyard to your plate? To the plate. Absolutely true. We've got basil going, we've got garlic growing, and Uta, my wife, says, remind me, we're going to make pesto. Remind me, don't forget. Right. We're going to waste that great basil we've got and that right. wonderful garlic we're growing. So again, waste becomes an issue. And whatever is not consumable or usable yeah. goes right back into the garden. Yeah, and you know what? I pick a tomato off the tomato plant and I bring it in. I don't even wash it. There's no pesticides on it. There's nothing but the air and the water. And, the so and some and the, soil. And the rain. There may be a bit of soil, but, but if it's, it's but, off the vine, but the there's soil no soil. contains very valuable mm -hmm. microorganisms that are essential yeah. to our bodies and to our immune systems. Sure. So it doesn't hurt to get a bit of dirt in your mouth. No. Uh, the other interesting food thing that eggs, for example, mm. when they're fresh from the hens, they don't need to be refrigerated. Right. Room temperature. Yeah, they can sit on the windowsill. Yeah, I know. They're coated in the, there's a coating on the surface of the shell, which through all the processing that eggs go through gets eliminated, and therefore you now you need to refrigerate and to preserve them. So all of these issues emerged through our friend Louis Pasteur working with germ theory, and vaccination and hygiene and the importance of hygiene and surgeries and that sort of thing. It all came out of that period of time. Mm -hmm. It changed our world and it's also giving argument or giving debate to our current situation in that many people feel we've taken things too far to the other side. And you drew that example when you talked about hand washing and so on. Yeah. It's almost like you can over sanitize. You can actually remove some of the sprays and so on that are being used to disinfect are actually damaging yeah, your natural system. It's toxic. not like ordinary water. No, yeah. no. They're toxic. They're toxic. <laughs> yeah, and, and made very vulnerable. Right. Nobody at the beginning of this pandemic said, folks, one of the primary things we want you to do to start with 
Yes, social distance, da, 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 da. But make sure you eat well. Take care of your immune system. And here are some doctor's recommendations, Mm -hmm. health professionals, nutritionists, recommendations about how to make your physical body stronger so that if you do engage this virus, you'll have a better chance of moving through it without too many difficulties. And also add to that fresh air, exercise, just the basic things that nature has laid out. Right. For us to follow. Exactly. All you have to do is look at the United States and how the pandemic has really slammed it mm-hmm. to understand how important this point is because people are in agreement that obesity is rampant in the United States. People are not living healthy lifestyles. They're eating crap food, etc. But the point should be made that it's not just weight. It's the lack of nutritional content. Right. It's exactly. empty calories. It's processed foods which speaks to the whole industrialization of food and profitability, convenience, and so on and so on. And also to the other issues where certain social aspects make it very, very difficult to act as a homogeneous society that can come to a certain level of agreement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But as you say, amongst the population, we have a thousand different ideas of what makes us healthy or what makes society healthy. And that's problematic. Mm -hmm. The whole point to me is to respect one another's thoughts and opinions and to be able to talk about it, right? Because we will never come to a total agreement on these things because we all come from so many different places, levels of knowledge, life experiences, and so on. I think it's very, very important for neither side to belittle the other, like the anti-vaxxers. Yeah, yeah. You know, like there's some kind of a criminal entity. Yeah, to terms, the terms like COVIDiots. And all the war talk. Yeah, of course. Like this virus had a military plan, it had an yeah. invasion plan. You right, know, exactly. You know. <laughs> that it's not a natural thing <laughs> right. in some ways, right? It's, it's yeah. unnatural. Right. It's an interesting uh, thing, the Mr. Pasteur. Yeah, and one of the things he said, to maybe wrap this up, mm. is um, that it's not about the germs. It's about the terrain, by which he meant what the germs land on. Where it lies. Yeah. So the whole immunity thing and herd immunity and keeping the body strong and healthy is critical at this time Mm -hmm. uh, as we loosen the lockdowns around the world. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a rise in COVID again in different parts of the world, which is natural because if you've been locked down, your immune system has been separated from the virus. And now that it's interacting with it, you're going to get it. So the stronger your immune system is, the better. So governments really need to start emphasizing how important it is for us to get stronger. And de-emphasizing, in my opinion, that nothing will work properly until we have a vaccine. Yeah. It may be a benefit. I'm not even arguing whether it's plus or minus with the vaccine. I'm just saying... Regardless, Regardless of the vaccine, vaccine your yeah. best defense is still to look after yourself, your mental and physical self, yes. so that you're empowered to defend yourself in the absence of anything else. Exactly. Well, Peter, I think I'm going to go home now <laughs> and drink a nice cold glass of pasteurized milk <laughs> and feel safe and sound and well. Yeah. Again, we'd like some feedback. We'd really appreciate some feedback on this and all our podcasts. We've done 130 odd now. Yep. And we've got a button on our website. Click on it and record your message if you don't feel like typing. Yep. Any kind of feedback is appreciated and feel free to pass it on to others. And if you donate, 
which you can. Mm -hmm. A certain amount of dough, $25, you'll receive free an audiobook written by yours truly called Peggy Lee's Delicious Lips and narrated by myself. It's two and a half hours long and it comes free with a donation of $25 or more to the sale. And it's one time, it's not ongoing. A one-time thing, so donate and mm. enjoy the book. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.